my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Welcome to another fun-filled edition of Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies and, for the time being, blabber about Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the seventh topic. This episode, we have bitey aliens, bitey sheep, and bitey piranha. A lot of things are hungry for human flesh in this episode. Adorn your body in a nice layer of chainmail and join me as we make our way through these movies nip-free. Number 1, Attack the Block, 2011, directed by Joe Cornish. A gang led by a kid named Moses mugs a lady named Sam. They then encounter an alien which they kill and take to a drug dealer's place. More aliens come to Earth that are much deadlier than the first one. The aliens start killing people. The gang and Sam become unlikely allies. It's revealed that the first alien was a female and the new ones are males. The female released a pheromone on Moses. Moses acts as bait in a plan to blow up all the aliens. It works out and Moses barely survives. The police arrest Moses and others. Sam, having forgiven Moses, tells the cops he and the other gang members didn't do anything. Moses and the aliens are the killers. Moses doesn't kill the first alien out of self-defense, so I'm considering him a killer. Attack the Block stars Lil Jean Boyega. It's crazy how much older he looks now, considering Attack the Block only came out seven years ago. From playing a British rascal to Star War. Good for you, Mr. Boyega. One thing I really enjoyed about this movie is the setting. All the events take place in and around a huge tower block apartment. The block practically ends up being a character. I'd say movies with a similar vibe setting-wise are The Raid and Dread. These giant apartment locations help make the movies incredibly atmospheric. In Attack the Block, all the acting seems good to me. To be fair, it was hard understanding the gang of teens due to their accents and loose approach to the English language, so it is possible that some of the characters are poorly acted. There are two really little kids, Probs and Mayhem, who are terribly unbelievable characters that aren't acted well, but they are thrown into the film solely as a comedic element, so who cares about the acting? The aliens are fantastic in this. They are done by filming people in altered gorilla suits with animatronic glowing jaws added on. Digital powers then came in to make the creatures the blackest black and enhance the teeth. I really enjoyed their design. The one female looks a lot different and a gross puppet was created for its corpse. The aliens mostly bite people to death, which gives us a ton of great practical gore scenes. There was some digital enhancement, which added crazy blood splatter, but it looks good. Attack the Block's soundtrack is made up of beats that sound like the new hotness from the British hip-hop scene of the time. I really enjoyed the soundtrack. It's fresh and really fits the vibe of the film. Everything is shot incredibly well. There are multiple cool shots of fireworks zooming towards the camera. 
The fireworks are used to distract the aliens. They are also used to fill a floor of the block with smoke. I'm not sure why the kids decide to do this. The kids already know the aliens are blind, so making the floor all smoky just seems to hinder the kids way more than the aliens. One of the kids gets chomped on because he gets lost in the smoke. Pet warning, one of the gang kids loses grip of his dog. The dog then rushes towards where an alien is and gets turned into dinner off screen. As soon as I saw that dog on screen, I knew he didn't have a chance. Attack the Block is an incredibly fun time. I recommend checking this one out. It's a very fresh take on an alien invasion movie. I almost didn't mention, Nick Frost is in this. He doesn't have a very big role, he's a drug dealer. I think he's a fun guy. He should have played Finn in the Star War. They let Simon Pegg be an alien, why'd they shaft Nick Frost? Number 2, Black Sheep, 2006, directed by Jonathan King. A hippie steals a genetically modified sheep fetus from a lab. The fetus comes to life and ends up spreading a virus by biting the hippie and a sheep. Infected sheep start eating people. People bitten by the infected sheep turn into sheep monsters. All the infected sheep are herded into a barn. The barn is then blown up by igniting the sheep's methane farts. The infected sheep are the killers. There are some plot points that I didn't mention in the summary. The lab is owned by a guy named Angus who played a serial killer-esque prank on his younger brother Henry when they were kids. Let's just get the pet warning out of the way. A rabbit is prepared for cooking, another rabbit gets its face bitten off by the hippie after he gets infected, and Angus slaughters Henry's favorite sheep, then drops the sheep's skin corpse in front of Henry before jumping out of the shadows wearing the sheep's skin and skull as a hat. Yeah, Angus is a sociopath. He also bangs sheep. It's not important to the plot, but Angus loves a particular sheep a little too much. This leads to him getting his penis bitten off by a sheep towards the end of the movie. You should never approach a flock of sheep bottomless. The member bite is hilarious and just one of the amazing practical gore scenes. There is a lot of great practical gore that we get to see when the sheep start eating people, even though there are a lot of sheep bite scenes, the most yeesh-inducing part of the movie is when one of the characters gets a bite wound on their hand swabbed by a Q-tip. It's weird how little things like that affect me. I guess it's the fact that that could actually happen to me. The main selling point of this movie is all the practical effects. The fetus that starts everything is a creepy little animatronic puppet. All the gore is done practically, and when people transform into sheep-human abominations, they look incredible. Kind of like minotaurs, if instead of bull-human hybrids, they were sheep-human hybrids. All these effects are done by Weta Workshop, which is one of the best special effects companies around. They've done a lot of work with Peter Jackson. Speaking of Peter Jackson, I'm pretty sure the Big White House in Black Sheep is the same one that appears in Jackson's first feature-length film, Bad Taste. I couldn't find anything confirming my suspicion 100%, but I'm 99% sure it's the same house. Both films are shot in New Zealand, so what other proof do I need? Black Sheep is almost a great film. Unfortunately, the two lead actors have zero charisma and are completely forgettable. The film starts off with a trio consisting of Henry, the younger of two brothers that grew up on the farm, a hippie girl named Experience, and Tucker, a farmhand and childhood friend of Henry's, as the protagonist. Tucker is hilarious and charismatic. Unfortunately, he gets captured by scientists that work at the lab and is absent for most of the film. This leads to Henry and Experience being our main characters, and oh man, are they boring. I can't even remember what they look like. 
two generic blonde people. Besides these two incredibly lame characters, the only other thing I have to dog on the movie for is a Wilhelm scream. I feel like I've complained enough about this overused scream on the podcast, but it must be eliminated. Sheep banging runs in the family, it seems, but more consensually when it comes to Angus's love for the woolly mammals. Henry has a moment with the sheep in the movie, but the sheep is forcing itself on Henry, who decided that disguising himself with the sheepskin was a good idea. Henry, you obviously weren't a sheep. I had never heard of mountain oysters until I watched Black Sheep. For those that don't know what mountain oysters are, they're sheep testicles. I won't be ordering that if I ever see it on a menu. Not that I would even request regular oysters. Even though the lead characters suck, Black Sheep is a movie worth seeing due to the practical effects and ridiculous premise. I'm always game for a New Zealand horror movie. Number 3, Piranha, 1978, directed by Joe Dante. A woman named Heather is looking for a missing couple that were backpacking in Texas. A mountain man named Paul accompanies her to a government facility. Heather drains a pool of genetically modified piranha into the general population despite the protest of a scientist at the lab who she knocks unconscious. The piranha, having already killed the couple who decided to skinny dip in the water, start making their way downriver, eating even more people as they go. Most of the piranha are killed by pollution that's released after Paul risks his life to turn a valve. Piranha are the killers. I mean, everything is pretty much Heather's fault, but she didn't know the water was filled with dangerous fish. If you are ever in a situation where a crazy looking scientist tells you not to pull a lever, maybe you should stop and hear them out. It's careless to pull random levers. Prana is a satirical Jaws ripoff. Prana doesn't try to hide its inspiration. We start with two skinny dippers and a Jaws arcade machine is shown when Heather is introduced. Prana was partially filmed in San Marcos during the time my dad went to Southwest Texas. The college was renamed to Texas State. He watched the movie with me and was able to name one of the extras. The particular location that was used for filming in San Marcos was called Ocarina Springs, which no longer exists. I'm still not sure what my overall opinion on Joe Dante is. I love the Gremlin series and Small Soldiers, but I'm not a big fan of The Howling, Bearing the X, or Piranha. Before you ask, yes, Dick Miller is in this, like every other Joe Dante movie I've covered. He plays the resort owner. Piranha should be something that I dig. The problem is, none of the humor in the film really lands for me. The soundtrack is especially bad. I get that this is from 78, but that does not give the movie a pass to just have awful soap opera music for the score. The music never fits the feeling that's trying to be captured on screen and ends up being incredibly distracting. The acting isn't good. Kevin McCarthy, who I mostly associate with his role as R.J. Fletcher in UHF, is in this. He's okay, but I think he really shines in comedic roles. His character in Piranha is the genetic scientist, who's supposed to be a serious character. Barbara Steele also shows up in this, but doesn't really add anything to the film. The two main characters are played by Bradford Dillman and Heather Menzies Urich. I didn't like either of them. As for the main draw of this movie, which are the scenes of people getting attacked by Piranha, they are plentiful and not very exciting. All the piranha attack scenes consist of fish puppets being shaken around a body underwater while fake blood is released. The piranha kills look terrible and cheesy, which would have been fine if we didn't get what feels like 20 minutes of the movie dedicated to these awful attack scenes. The first time it happens is funny and novel, but after the fourth attack, I was just bored. 
I appreciate these practical attacks though. The makeup for the bite wounds is kind of fun. There are some really cool practically made monsters in the scientist's lab. You even get to see a weird little claymation hammerhead creature. I wish the first yet tiny streak shark had a bigger role in the movie. It's weird that Paul decides to accompany Heather. He doesn't really take any convincing, even though they just met and they aren't exactly friendly before the decision to make their way to the government facility. Heather knocks out two guys in the movie with objects that could easily kill them. Every time she does this, she's surprised that they're still breathing, so I think Heather is actually a serial killer. Heather and Paul steal a bunch of vehicles, a military jeep, police car, and a boat. They take the police car after they break out of jail. What a couple of hooligans. Now for some dumb things. We get multiple shots of piranha gliding through the water without actually swimming. There's a part where Paul has to dive underwater to turn a valve. You'd think if someone had to dive into piranha infested water, they would make sure their boat is close to the location they are diving to. For some reason, Paul dives into the water when he is nowhere near where he needs to go. Universal Studios tried to stop Piranha from being released because Jaws, but stopped being jerks after Steven Spielberg said he liked the film. Piranha is an okay time. I didn't particularly love it due to its all over the place nature and repetitive death scenes, but it's an alright B movie. Piranha has one official sequel that's directed by James Cameron, so you know I'll be covering that in a bit. It also has two remakes, one from 1995 that premiered on Showtime that I won't be covering, and one that was released in 2010. The 2010 version, Piranha 3D, was directed by Alexandre Aja, the director of High Intensity, so I'll be covering it here in a bit as well. Number 4, Wish Upon, 2017, directed by John R. Leonetti. A girl named Claire has a mom that commits suicide. Twelve years later, Claire's dad gives her a music box he found in the trash. Claire uses the music box to make wishes. Her dog Max and people start dying. The Chinese on the box is translated and Claire learns that there is a blood price for her wishes. She continues to wish after knowing this. She finds out her mom originally used the music box, which is why she killed herself. Claire's last wish is to go back in time before she used the music box. Everything is back to the way it was. Claire then gets hit by an SUV and dies. The music box and Claire are the killers. A girl named Darcy is driving the SUV that kills Claire, but the music box made that accident happen. To start things off, this movie is horrible in the best possible way. All of the acting is terrible, none of the characters are believable, most of the deaths are done in perfect comedic fashion. I don't think the deaths are supposed to be funny though. The most hilarious death of the movie goes to Claire's uncle. Let me walk you through this fantastic death. Claire's old man uncle gets naked in preparation for a soothing bath. While getting in the bath, he loses his footing and takes a tumble. His fall is broken by his head hitting the porcelain tub. We get some blood here which is somewhat surprising given the PG-13 rating. It looks like old man Bones is dead as water begins to cover him in the tub. Don't worry folks, he's still alive and well. He jolts up but unfortunately the tub's faucet is right above his head which leaves a painful looking cut and sends him back to his watery demise. The first fall had me laughing out loud, so the second part of his death is truly the cherry on top of a perfect comedic death. Other deaths include a very stupid chainsaw accident, ponytail stuck in a garbage disposal situation, and a faulty elevator. Pet warning, Claire's dog Max dies under the house. 
We don't see him die, but we do see rats eating him, which seems way worse. The writing in Wish Upon is insanely terrible. There are so many ridiculous lines of dialogue in this movie that no one would ever say. To give you an idea, I'm going to read some quotes I wrote down from the movie. <clears throat> Here we go. Your ultimate smegma. Suicide, opium, romantic. Me and these tons need some time alone. Your dad is serious hot sauce, like sriracha hot. A selfish bowl of bitch sauce. Holy ballsack. Those are all lines in the movie. I know, I know, sriracha is not hot. Who thinks sriracha is hot? Maybe that line was more of a jab at Claire's dad being just okay looking and not actually hot? Also, the ultimate smegma line would have actually worked if the character Claire slung the well-crafted insult at was named Meg. I'm not sure how anyone could have written those lines and thought to themselves, this is how the teens talk. There are so many nonsensical moments in this movie though, so I don't think anyone cares about realism. I'm just going to list random things that happen. While riding her bike, Claire does a U-turn into oncoming traffic for no reason. While at school, Claire sees her dad dumpster diving. No one knows it's her dad. Claire gets mad that her dad is embarrassing her, even though no one knows it's her dad. So, she yells dad at the top of her lungs to make sure everyone knows her dad is the one dumpster diving. When Claire comes home to see her mom commit suicide, before Claire enters the house, she leaves a bike on the lawn. That bike is still there, unmoved, 12 years later. Claire's dad randomly plays the saxophone alone. His death does not involve a saxophone accident or saxident, which is a completely missed opportunity. The girl who translates the music box drops her phone from four stories up after being startled. The next day, the phone is still able to ring. Claire farted and blamed it on a guy named Ryan when they were kids, which caused him to be mercilessly picked on for years. Okay, so that last thing can actually happen. It's just ridiculous that it's part of the plot. Claire has a friend named Meredith who is a sociopath. She's ecstatic when another girl has to have parts of her body amputated and is an all-around terrible friend. Claire's other friend, June, is played by Shannon Purser. She's probably best known for her performance as Barb in Stranger Things. I thought she was going to die for sure, but she survives this movie. Wish Upon is an amazing so bad it's good movie. If you were looking for laughs and stupidity, you should definitely check out Wish Upon. John R. Leonetti has directed three other movies, Annabelle, The Butterfly Effect 2, and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. He's mainly been a cinematographer though. He was the cinematographer for a bunch of movies including Child's Play 3, Dead Silence, Piranha 3D, Insidious 1 and 2, and The Conjuring. One last thing for Wish Upon. During the credits, we get a cheesy song about being careful what you wish for over random evil imagery that barely has any relation to the movie. Amazing credit sequence. Number 5, Piranha 2, The Spawning, 1981, directed by James Cameron. A couple dives down to a shipwreck to do it. The shipwreck is home to genetically engineered piranha. The couple is eaten. A girl named Anne takes her diving class to the shipwreck. One of her students dies. After this, Anne investigates the death, and with the help of a guy she just met named Tyler, she finds out piranha are responsible. It's revealed that the piranha can fly. They start eating random people on land and at sea. Anne, Tyler, and her estranged husband Steve 
come up with a plan to blow up the piranha. Anne and Tyler dive to the shipwreck while Steve prepares to evacuate them. Steve finds his son and a girl stranded at sea in a dinghy, crashes his helicopter, and swims to a boat to save the kids. Anne is able to get out before the explosion by grabbing onto an anchor as Steve drives the boat away. But Tyler is attacked by Piranha and doesn't make it. Anne and Steve make up and are a family again. Flying Piranha are the killers. Piranha 2 The Spawning was James Cameron's feature-length directorial debut. There is a little bit of controversy surrounding that statement though, since a guy named Miller Jake was the original director until he was replaced by Cameron. It's also been stated that Ovidio G. Asinitis, the producer and co-director of Piranha 2, was really the one that was in charge and even fired Cameron. Regardless of who really directed the movie, it launched James Cameron's career as a director. Before we dive into the nitty gritty, I'd like to start off this segment by answering a question. Which movie is better, Piranha or Piranha 2? I don't think either movie is actually worth watching. The first one is better crafted, but the sequel has flying piranha. Even though Piranha 2 is a much funnier film due to the airborne piranha, I want to say the first one is the better movie. That's not saying much though. Piranha 2 would probably be recommended if it weren't for the shoddy craftsmanship. A lot of the movie barely has any audio, there's a bunch of poor lighting, and the acting is even worse than the first, barring Lance Henriksen. Lance Henriksen plays Steve, the estranged husband and police officer. He's great and the only memorable character. There is one other character who is almost great but underutilized. That character is Gabby. He's a dynamite fisherman. His son is killed by the piranha, so he wants to get some revenge. He makes the charges that Anne and Tyler end up placing in the shipwreck. Gabby should have been given a hero's death, but instead he goes out like a chump after three piranha fly at him. The gore in Piranha 2 is much better than the first movie. The gore isn't good enough for me to recommend watching this though. I did appreciate the addition of Piranha Kills on land. Seeing a piranha fly through the air and take a chomp out of someone's jugular is hilarious. The first three times. After that, even the land kills begin to get boring since practically every kill is the same. A piranha flies at a victim and bites them on the right side of their neck. That's what happens every single time. All the deaths are eerily the same. I don't know why the people behind these piranha movies have such an issue coming up with interesting piranha kills. The movie starts off with Anne's son shoving a weird fish in her face as she wakes up. She's under a sheet and it doesn't look like she's wearing clothes. Her son is supposed to be in his late teens. The whole thing is super weird. After this, they are talking and there's a really creepy Oedipus vibe. It's a really weird way to start a movie, to say the least. During the climax of the film, where the shipwreck is about to blow up, Steve is in a helicopter looking for his son and the girl his son's with. Steve spots them hanging out in a dinghy. Now, I'm no helicopter expert, but I believe Steve could hover over the dinghy the kids are in, have them grab onto the helicopter, and carefully fly them the very short distance to the boat that's nearby. Instead, Steve bails out of the helicopter, swims to the boat, and picks up the kids. I guess there's no way my plan could have been enacted. Steve would have had to use the loudspeaker in his helicopter to tell his son to punch it at a certain time to get away from the shipwreck explosion. That would have been way too difficult. Destroying the helicopter was a much better plan. Prana 2 The Spawning is a really stupid movie. 
If for some reason you were on a plane, forgot to download a decent movie to watch on your preferred media device before takeoff, and Piranha 2, The Spawning, ends up being the in-flight movie, then and only then do I recommend giving the movie your full attention. It's just not worth the watch otherwise. Number 6, Piranha 3D, 2010, directed by Alexandre Aja. An earthquake releases a bunch of prehistoric piranha into a lake that's a spring break hotspot. A boy named Jake is supposed to watch his siblings since his sheriff mom has to deal with spring breakers. He goes to work with the pornographer instead. Piranha munch a bunch of people to death. Jake saves a girl he likes and blows up a majority of the piranha. A scientist reveals that these are only the babies. A giant prehistoric piranha then jumps out of the water and eats an earthquake analyst. Piranha, a police officer, and a douchebag named Todd are the killers. The police officer ends up squishing Eli Roth's head with a boat during an outbreak of chaos. Yep, Eli Roth is in this. He plays the wet t-shirt host, of course. Todd is a killer because he drives a motorboat into and over a bunch of people. He does this on purpose. He's a terrible jerk boy. This movie has a ton of people in it. I'm not exactly sure why everyone decided to sign on, but here's some of the people in this movie. Richard Dreyfuss, Ving Rhames, Christopher Lloyd, Jerry O'Connell, and Adam Scott. They try to make Adam Scott a badass, and it doesn't work at all. He's the one that gets eaten by the big piranha at the end. This movie starts with some of the worst CGI I have ever seen. There's a terrible sequence where Richard Dreyfuss is fishing, an earthquake happens, a whirlpool is created, his boat is sucked in, he falls in the water, and then he is swarmed by piranha. I almost gave up on the movie during this sequence. Everything during it looks especially terrible. The piranha don't end up looking much better after this part, but boy oh boy does the gore get exponentially better. After this terrible Dreyfus feeding frenzy and title, we see Mr. Dreyfus's chewed up hand reach out of the water. Most of the gore from here on out is practical, gross, and great. This is honestly what I expected from Aja after seeing High Tension. He does not disappoint when it comes to practical gore in Piranha 3D. The movie is like a clown car, and all the gore is a group of clowns that shouldn't be able to fit in it. You have people getting their limbs chewed down to the bone, eyeballs eaten right out of skulls, bodies torn in half. There's an abundance of gore. On the opposite end, this movie is also full of nudity. If you have wanted to see a movie that just has a bunch of nudity and ridiculous gore, this is it. Speaking of nudity and gore, you do get to see a piranha eat a penis. This brings the count of movies on this episode where an animal bites a penis to a total of two. It's hilarious and graphic. I'm pretty sure that part is all CGI, but it's funny. This movie has a similar death to the garbage disposal hair tangle that's in Wish Upon, but since Piranha is rated R, everything is much more graphic. A girl gets her hair stuck in a boat's propeller. Once the propeller is powered back on, the girl loses her scalp and her face. It's way more comedic than disturbing. Wish Upon's director was the cinematographer for Piranha 3D, which is probably why they had similar deaths and why Jerry O'Connell makes an appearance in both movies. I didn't mention that Jerry O'Connell had a brief role while talking about Wish Upon because, well, it's super brief. He's great in Piranha. He plays sleazebag and bro characters so well. Shout out to his performance in Scream 2. 
In Piranha 3D, I didn't like Stephen R. McQueen's performance as Jake. He's not likable at all. I get that he's supposed to be a loser, and a charismatic loser is kind of an oxymoron, but I wanted him to be less flat. Besides his performance, I didn't hate anyone else, given the campiness of the film. I do wish the acting was a bit hammier than it is, and Christopher Lloyd should have had a bigger role because he's Christopher Lloyd. I actually also hated the kid brother and sister, and I think they should have been entirely removed. They serve no purpose and aren't funny. Not only is there really bad CGI in this movie, there are also some glaring sound and camera issues. There are multiple scenes where dialogue doesn't match up with the actor's mouths, a terrible female stock scream is used, and since the movie came out during the 3D gimmick era, there are a lot of stupid looking shots for the sole purpose of having things look like they are coming at the audience. Since I obviously didn't see this in 3D, these shots only detracted from my enjoyment of the film. Even though Piranha 3D has a ton of flaws, it is an incredibly fun time if you are cool with a bunch of gore and nudity. The practical gore really does carry this movie, just like it did in High Tension. Luckily, Piranha 3D doesn't end by revealing Jake was the piranha all along. Number 7, Buffy Babble. I have now seen up to episode 3 of season 6. Dawn is in fact revealed to be Satan. The finale of season 5 where Buffy has to battle literal Satan in a hell coliseum is the best television I have ever seen. I can't believe Buffy and Willow fused together using the fusion dance from Dragon Ball Z. As you can probably tell, I was actually wrong about Don being Satan. Don ends up being the human form of a key that brings down all the dimension barriers. This basically means that if Don is used to create a portal, everything goes bananas in a bad way. The big bad who is trying to make all this happen is Glorificus, aka Glory. She's an immortal hell god. When she was initially revealed, I thought she was going to be a dope big bad, but unfortunately she ends up being more boring than exciting. Glory shares a body with a human named Ben, and they flip back and forth at random. Anyway, before diving further into this season, I should list the killers as I do. Drusilla, other vampires, Glorificus, a little worm demon thing, and a brain aneurysm are the killers. Yep, that's it. The show isn't really a Monster of the Week show anymore. It's been a lot harder to binge recently because of this. Some plots are just so boring. I don't care about Riley at all. Half the season is spent wasting time on Riley. I never thought there would be a character that was so painfully boring that I would prefer Angel be brought back in their place. But here we are. Pet warning, Willow slaughters a baby deer. She does this to do a resurrection spell for Buffy, who dies in the season 5 finale. That finale was supposed to be the series finale. I found it a little silly because Buffy sacrifices herself on a hunch. Basically, the portal is open, and the only way to close it is to kill Don. Buffy believes that her blood is the same as Don's. Buffy isn't 100% sure that sacrificing herself by jumping into the portal will work, but she does it anyways. Boy would her face have been red if Don still had to die to stop the portal. Glory ends up being lame. Since the overarching plot of Season 5 didn't really do anything for me, let me tell you about other stuff that happened during the season. I said a brain aneurysm is a killer in this season, and that's because Joyce dies. It's super sad. The episode where we go through the death and whatnot is called The Body, and it makes you cry. It's an incredibly well done episode that's crafted to hit you as hard as it can in your emotions. 
If I hadn't mentioned it, Joyce is Buffy's mom. Later on in the season, Glory sucks out Tara's brain, but since we have this happen so close to Joyce's death, Tara being left alive but crazy really isn't anywhere near as impactful. It's kinda stupid, actually. I think that is my main gripe with Season 5. Glory doesn't do anything devastating to the gang. Sure, Buffy ends up dying, but that happens at the very end, and I knew she'd come back. Tara even gets her mind back rather quickly. Glory does zero lasting damage. Back to interesting things. Drusilla pops back up for a second to try and get back with Spike, but Spike loves Buffy now. Spike and Buffy are on course to end up together. Spike delayed this inevitable coupling by having a sex robot of Buffy made. There is some young guy who is able to make robots that are almost indistinguishable from humans. Him being able to make these robots doesn't make any sense. Speaking of not making any sense, in the finale a lot of nonsense happens. The gang has a thing called a Dagon Sphere that allegedly repels glory. They also have a powerful troll hammer. They give the sphere to Robo Buffy who approaches glory. Glory is weakened by the sphere. Fortunately for Glory, Robo Buffy throws Glory the sphere, allowing her to quickly turn it into dust. Gee, gang, why didn't we just put the sphere in a backpack, have real Buffy wear the backpack, and then have her attack Glory with the hammer? Don't you think that would have worked better? Also, we know Willow is basically capable of becoming omnipotent by casting a spell. But for some reason, Willow never uses this spell again. There are a lot of silly decisions leading up to the portal being opened. About the portal. A dragon flies out, but we haven't seen it since the finale. I've only seen two episodes of season 6, so I'm hoping the dragon shows up again. One thing that I haven't mentioned yet is the fact that Giles murders Glory when she goes back to Ben form after being weakened by taking multiple hammer strikes to the face from Buffy. I don't count Giles as a killer for this, since Ben kind of turned evil and sided with Glory before Giles decided to make sure Glory couldn't indulge in monkey business ever again by killing Ben. I'm hoping the show goes back to a somewhat Monster of the Week type formula in Season 6, but I'm not holding my breath. Hopefully the big bad is interesting this season at least. Oh, Giles also went back to England. He does this before Buffy is resurrected, so I'm assuming he'll be back soon. That's a wrap on episode 26. I didn't plan on watching a bunch of films about biting creatures, but accidental themes are great. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the first two Piranha movies more than I enjoyed watching them. Buffy hasn't been as fun recently, but now that Riley is gone and Angel can't even make an appearance due to some network changes, things will hopefully improve. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast. I recently went down to San Antonio to do a quick bit of acting in a short film they made in 48 hours. Once it's released, I'll let you know where you can watch it. If you like this episode, why not rate Blank is the Killer on iTunes? I know iTunes sucks, but getting ratings there is allegedly important. I'll be back with episode 27 on September 9th. Until then, try to stay away from anything that looks like it wants to bite you.